All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour making this show economically viable. Uh, they are American Manganese, Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Prophecy Platinum, and Millrock Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me once again Jim Lyles. He's a veteran commodity broker and trader and graduate of the University of Montana. Uh, he has spent the last 30 years in the investment business with six years' experience in stock brokerage. Presently, he manages uh, commodity portfolios. He works with investors to trade individual accounts and writes a monthly newsletter called Visible Trends. Jim is the author of Commodity, Inflation, and uh, the Next Great Wealth Building Opportunity. Uh, his most uh, recent book is entitled The Wealth Preservation Handbook, The DNA for Commodity Inflation, uh, in which Jim provides a comprehensive look at, into time-tested strategies for preserving and growing your wealth in today's highly competitive financial environment. Welcome, uh, Jim. It's really good to have you back with me again. Well, thank you, Jay. Uh, you're talking again. to me from sunny Arizona today. I know that we're, I'm going to be joining you uh, on the 27th and 28th down at the Wealth Protection Conference uh, in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, it was just a little more than one year ago when you and I participated in that show. How would you, um, just in looking at the economy now relative to last year, how different is it? Well, the economy has uh, improved somewhat, uh, you know, because the jobs picture is just a little better, if you can believe, you know, what's coming out of Washington. And, uh, and you know, the thing about it is uh, the stock market has improved, you know, had, was 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 uh, up pretty high when we had the wealth conference, and, of course, it sold off into the uh, lows that we had in November, but it's had a pretty good run since November, um, which... Uh, now the market is uh, kind of telling us that maybe the, the we they over kind of overdid that stock market for a minute. Mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, commodities. Uh, I kind of predicted that uh, you know at the wealth conference, I said that the commodity market was looked like it was reaching the end of the thirty-year inflationary cycle and is deflating. And uh, and I. I'm, and each day that goes by, I'm, I'm getting to be more comfortable in saying that uh, that our the inflation period that began in 2001 and ended last May of uh, 2011 appears to be over. Mm-hmm. So, well, so so you're not then I take it that bullish on commodities in general. Let's say on on copper and and energy prices. Energy, I'm bearish on energy. I mean, we've got. Right now, we're sitting with a supply of crude oil in this country that's bigger than it was 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, to me, this this four dollar a gallon gasoline is an absolute joke. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that gasoline should be four dollars other than the logistics of our refineries, and that's right. the only reason it's there. Right. We have a glut of crude oil, you know, and uh, when we begin the inflationary cycle, we were importing or producing about 42% of the crude oil that we use in this country and and now we're producing upwards of 55%. So we're becoming more energy independent as we are now recognizing natural gas as a source of energy to run our automobiles. Yeah. Huge. Uh absolutely huge. We had uh Doug Casey and Rick Rule on the show some time ago. 
And both of those guys were, you know, really anti-U.S. when it comes to investing here, anti-U.S. for other reasons, too, in terms of liberty and that sort of thing, which I think they still are as much as ever, if not more than ever. But at the same time, uh, you know, Rick Rule noted that this this uh, American ingenuity and technology is allowing uh, the exploitation of the shale gas and oil, uh, uh, you know, like huge amounts of that available to us. So, so you're very bearish, I guess, for for two reasons. Is it is it more to do with supply uh, than demand, or are both of those factors kicking in? Well, a little bit of both, but mainly it's the supply. I mean, look, we've developed when when technology developed horizontal drilling mm-hmm. and and fracking, we. <clears throat> We opened up areas of oil fields that we, you know, used to get oil out of, but uh, with this new technology, it just made those oil fields even more, you know, product more available or crude oil more available to us. So, you know, you take the Bakken field up there in North Dakota, there is there's a sea of oil under that under mm-hmm. that Bakken field. It's bigger than Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is we have no tr- no no a means of of transporting that oil out of there because there's no pipelines up there. Right. Uh, that there's limited pipelines. I'm mean, not saying there's no pipelines, but they're they're not adequate for the supply of oil. So they're so they're moving this oil by rail car, which is you know inefficient as heck. So uh, you know until we can build, you know if. If Obama would have allowed the XL pipeline to go through, they would have used some of the capacity of that XL pipeline to bring oil to the Gulf. The problem that we have in this country is we built all the refineries down on the Gulf yeah. with the idea that we would import oil forever and not produce any in this country. Hmm. So we have we we don't have any me any pipelines that flow from Cushing, Oklahoma, down to the to the refineries. Hmm. We are, all the pipelines flow north. They don't flow south. Yeah. And, of course, this, you know, there's companies that are starting, that are going in and, you know, reconfiguring those pipelines so that they can bring some of that oil from Cushing down to the Gulf and start refining it rather than refining, you know, the Brent crude. Because Brent mm-hmm. crude's got such a, you know, war premium on it. That's why gasoline's so high. Right. That's another reason in addition to the refinery uh, restrictions. I, I think it's an inter- interesting. I was just thinking, you know, Jim, that uh, President Obama's good friend there, Warren Buffett, and he's out there today uh, promoting the, uh, you know, we're happy to be taxed more message from Warren Buffett. Interesting, I was thinking, as you said, the uh, we're hauling, ra- you're using rail cars to haul that uh, petroleum in, and they're Warren Buffett's uh, rail cars, perhaps, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's why he likes it. Uh, there's one town up in Montana that I lived in years ago, and there used to be one track there that came. It was a it was a spur off the main line, and there was only one track that came into this town. That's right in the heart of this oil boom, and now you go up there. There are eight tracks up there, and they're loading rail cars with uh, oil, crude oil, mm-hmm. and buffets, yeah. and they're buffets uh, rail cars. Yeah. So, um, well, maybe a coincidence, maybe not. I mean, certainly Mr. Obama can make it look like he really cares deeply about the uh, about the uh, environment and, and I suppose satisfy certain segments of the, of the Democratic Party. But putting politics aside, you can't really. But, of course, who knows what's going on there. And I think it's certainly not free market economics, is it? No, it's not. Okay, the so whole thing is being manipulated. Yeah, in every which way. Uh, in, yes. un- unfortunately, from the macro, from the top one, policymakers on down to, uh, to intervention in, uh, in small markets, I suppose. But, um, so you're, you're fairly bearish on, on commodities in general. Is that safe to say? You believe yes. that I'm, you feel I, you more know, and more I mean, comfortable with this the notion? The thing that is, that we reached a, a 30, 60, 90 year cycle peak last year. The same as we did in 1921, which was, uh, 90 years ago. Sixty years ago, in 1951, we put a top in the commodity market, and in 1980, we put a top in the commodity market. So we got a 30, 60, 90-year cycle. That's, these are dominant cycles that say the top is in. So I'm negative 
the, you know, that commodity prices and what they do is they, they've now reached full retail and beyond. And what they'll do is over the next 20 years, they'll get, they'll go down to wholesale and sit there. Yeah. Well, a lot of people will say, well, you're absolutely nuts. You know, we have, we have all of these wealthy, uh, countries, you know, these emerging countries that now have new, newfound wealth and they want, you know, they want their, their, they want more, more of everything for, to, to improve their life. Right. But, you know, when it comes to grains, you know, here, here's an interesting thing. You know, you take the grain markets, all of a sudden, you know, in this nine, in this 10 years of in commodity inflation, uh, corn, for example, we were only planting 82 million acres of corn a year in this country. Well, now we're planting 95 million acres. Mm-hmm. Where did these extra 13 million acres come from? They came from that land that was called CRP, or uh, uh, Conservation Reserve Program, where mm-hmm. the government paid the farmers not to farm. Mm-hmm. So those acres came out of there, and they started farming them again. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to 19, in the 50s. When, when commodity prices peaked, they created a program called Soil Bank, mm-hmm. which paid the farmers to do nothing. This, they, I mean, they, all of these programs... Follow the 30-year cycle, just like <laughs> clockwork. Interesting. In 2016, they'll come with a new program that'll pay all these farmers to not farm again. Mm-hmm. Jim, let, <laughs> let me ask you, uh, when you talk about a 30, 60, and 90-year cycle, uh, is the 60-year cycle bigger than the 30 and the 90 bigger than the 60? Yeah, the 90 is the, really the powerful one. So what you're saying is that you're looking for a very dramatic decline in commodity prices? Yeah, they'll they'll drop down. They won't go down to the wholesale level they were at during the the 80s and 90s. But you'll know, take, you know, take corn for example. It was it got as low as a, you know, a dollar 35 a bushel in the, in the 1980s. And then bounced along and traded between a dollar 35 and 2 250 for, you know, forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Well, you won't see corn go back down to a dollar thirty-five. You'll probably see corn maybe as cheap as in this the next twenty years. You might see corn as low as two eighty. But mm-hmm. who knows? I mean, is a dollar still going to be around twenty years in the you know twenty years from now? Is it still going to be the reserve currency of the world? Who knows? Yeah, these are questions, of course, that will make a huge difference. And I want to talk to you about yeah. the dollar for sure, but. Just before we get to that, what about copper? I see, you know, today is a very interesting day in the markets, Jim. You know, um, we, we've seen gold and silver up sharply after they were down earlier in the day. The Dow has lost down, is down 213 points. It closed 213 points down. The Nasdaq's down over 50 points, 55 points. The S&P's down 23 points. Bloody, bloody day on Wall Street. And yet gold and silver rebounded very nicely. Copper, however, did not. Last I looked, okay. copper was down seven cents to three sixty-five or something like that. What Neither, um, and platinum didn't recover either. Platinum did not. No. And silver was pretty good, though. Maybe didn't gain as much as gold. I don't know percentage-wise. Well, what it what it, you know the thing is, gold. I don't look at gold and silver as a commodity that's going to follow this commodity cycle. Exactly. I look at those. I look at those two metals as being. Gold, in particular, is a currency now. Mm-hmm. It's not a commodity. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, you know, I look for gold. Uh, I had, I've, I've been writing about this in my newsletter every month. I said, folks, it's too early to buy gold, too early to buy gold. If you look at gold, it, uh, it you know, every time it's made some milestone peak, it has traded sideways for a year. Well, we put that peak in last September. So gold could trade sideways until, you know, July or August and put in a bottom and then take off and make new highs by year end. It's possible. Mm-hmm. But I do expect new highs by the first quarter of next year in gold. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to your point on will the dollar still be the dollar, will it be the reserve currency, Ian McAvity, who will be at the Wealth Protection Conference again, I know I like to quote him. Uh, he wrote once in his newsletter, a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. An ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. What is a dollar? So where, where, where does this take us? I mean, who knows, right? Where, where we're heading? Well, the in, thing in, is, I, like I've always said, I said at the Wealth Conference last year, the, when we were there and the dollar was trading at 71 and some change, I said, 
the dollar is in a 16-year cycle. It put its low in 1992. So 16 years later, it puts a low in in, 2000, in, in 2008. Mm-hmm. Until that low that we put in in 2008 is violated, I remain. Uh, I, I still believe that the dollar will will, will uh, stay stay relatively strong. Mm-hmm. But if it takes out that 70, 80 low, forget everything I've just said, because mm-hmm. commodities, crude oil, gold, and everything will go through the roof. Yeah, this because is what they, I think is very, Because they're all priced very... in dollar terms. Yeah, I think this is very, very essential, uh, Jim. You know, we've had um, hyperinflationist John Williams in this show already, and he's talked about his case for hyperinflation is a dollar that crashes, essentially goes to zero. And then you can start to see hyperinflation, of course. But um, you have a line in the sand that you've drawn. You just mentioned that 2008 low. What is that number, Jim? That's 7080. If that is broken on a monthly basis... We are. We have now entered into the the period where the dollar collapses, mm-hmm. and that's this, my reference point. I will get spooked when that seventy eighty is violated. Right. And how nervous did you become uh, as it entered that level? It got pretty close. Well, I, you know, when I it was down there near pretty close to it a year ago at the wealth conference, and I said yes. the, the boat is lopsided. There's too many dollar shorts out there. I don't think it's going to stay down here. It's going mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And it did. In the next week, it took off and started climbing. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a good call, and I can tell you, and I thank you for this. I've been watching that number, although I had it, I think, slightly higher at seventy-one thirty-eight. I knew it was right around there, uh, and have been talking about it in my own newsletter and mentioning your work with respect to that because I, I thought that was a great insight. You know, we have, we have people that are hyperinflationists. We have people that are deflationists. Uh, I lean towards a deflationary camp because of this enormous amount of debt. I know that the natural inclination of these markets is to deflate, to come down extremely hard. They're printing huge amounts of money to try to counteract the natural forces of nature. But uh, at the same time, you know, the U.S. has this enormous military machine. As long as it can keep alive, it's out there telling other countries they have to buy currencies or they have to buy the dollar or they're going to be in trouble. Ultimately, of course, China and some of the more powerful countries are going to <clears throat> tell us to take a hike and are already doing so, I suppose. But, um, but, but uh, do you see – where do you come down on this? So essentially what I think the value that you provided to me, Jim, and to a great extent was this insight. Now, there could be an inflection point where, where we actually go over the cliff one way or the other. And, and that's at 7080. We, we, we go over the cliff at 7080. To me, that that is, I think this is something very few people are talking about. You know, it's it's easy to get emotional and antagonistic with our colleagues. Sometimes I find myself, I mean, I don't as much as I used to in, in my youth, but I sort of figure that, you know, nobody knows for sure which way this is going to go, but give me a tipping point. And I think that, to me, makes more sense than anything else because, you know, John Williams will say, I'll, I'll argue, I'll say, we can't have hyperinflation when people are running out of money and they can't buy anything. But he'll say, yes, we can if the dollar goes down and if it goes, and he's, he's confident that the dollar is going to crash and become worthless. What you're saying is you think that's possible, but you don't know when, and you're going to watch that. Yeah, I mean, that to me is, is my reference point. And when it, when, 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 it, when it goes below 70, 80, the gold will surpass 1,900. And, and people ask me, well, what, what am I going to do with my wealth? Mm-hmm. I still have, you know, a majority of my wealth in dollars, mm-hmm. and and at that point, I will put all my, uh, the rest of my my wealth, my dollars, in the Australian dollar. At that point, mm-hmm. in the Australian that's a cur- dollar, that's a currency that I I want my currency of choice at that point, and gold, of course, and gold. Of course, I own gold, and and I'll buy more if it go- once it goes past nineteen hundred, I'll buy more. Yeah. Um, and, and silver to an extent, I guess. Sure. Uh, okay. So, uh, all right. So, what, so let's t- let's look at some of these various commodities now. Then, um, wh- do you have some short? Do you trade them at all? For example, do you trade copper? Oh yes, I trade all, I trade all, all the commodities on uh, the short side as well as the long side. Yeah, you know, I mean, to me, right now, I'm geared towards selling short. I sell short. When I see you know when I see good rallies run out of gas, I sell short. I'm playing the short side of the market. 
the, the long side doesn't appeal to me at all. Yeah. Okay. So you're because uh, only uh, only there's only two commodities that appeal. I mean, two what are called commodities, gold and silver, that appeal to me from the long side. Mm-hmm. The rest of them I'm I'm treating as uh, you know they're they're only see the thing is. When I first spoke at the Wealth Conference in 2002, I told everybody, I said, we're, we're looking at inflation, and you will see commodity prices advance to levels you have never seen them before. Mm-hmm. Well, every commodity that's traded on the exchanges went to a new level, but silver. Silver is the only one that never made a new high, mm-hmm. never took out the 1980 highs. Right. And, but I said, uh, you know, and now I, I'm, I'll, stand, I'll say right now, that you will not see a hundred and fifty dollar a barrel crude until we go past two thousand twenty eight. Now that's a brave statement to make. Wow. Two thousand until the year two thousand twenty eight. After two thousand twenty eight. And this is based on your cycle theory? Yes. It's a based on a thirty I believe strongly in a thirty year cycle because I believe man is so stupid he doesn't learn anything and repeats all the stupidity every thirty years. That's very interesting. And this is sounds pretty much like W D Gann, right? Well it's Gann. That's what I follow is Gann's work. Yeah. Right. So does Ian Gordon, who's been on this show as well. He uh it absolutely makes a certain amount of sense. So what happens is we don't learn from our past is what you're saying. We don't learn from our stupidity. Right. And this has to do a lot with, I know, Ian's work uh, on the Kondratiev cycle where he looks at 60, 70 year cycles. Uh, that's uh, his yeah. work uh, sort of suggests that and that, you know, we live through one, you know, one 60 or 70 year period of time and, you know, we don't believe what our grandparents told us. So we, we don't learn. We don't look at history. Most people don't look at history. I think that's, that's probably right. Well, Jim, what about this notion? One of the arguments for deflation that comes along and one that I, I think you can see from time to time, is that the and and one of the reasons for a larger you know for being somewhat bullish on the dollar uh, and I think we saw this after Lehman Brothers is that you know there's more dollar denominated debt than any other currency so when the system contracts when the global system contracts when the credit system starts to to shrink then you have a short covering of the dollar is that what goes on yeah, and that's what you have—a short covering of the dollar. But the other thing that's what's what's hold, that's strengthening the dollar right now is there's been a lot of capital that has moved from Europe over to the United States to invest in our stock market, mm-hmm. and that's why you've seen the the dollar strengthen. But the other thing is 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 you've got all of these all these countries around the world that are printing money just like we are. Yes, and the reason they are is because. If their currency is so high, they can't export. Right. So what they're doing is they're they're buying dollars to bring the value of the dollar up, so that they so their currency will go down, so they can export. Isn't this much of what happened uh, very similar in some ways than what happened? What we're here happened in the 1930s. Well, yeah. A beggar than neighbor, you know, cheapen your currency so you can export stuff because the the global economy sucks so badly that there's no place else to, you know, you have to try to just competitive devaluation, right? Yeah. And the other thing is, is when you start looking at the Europeans that want to invest their do- their money, their euros, they look at at uh, China and they say, well, that's still a communist country. I don't know if I want to invest over there. Right. They look at Russia, and Russia here, you know, the, the, this is a crony, cronyism. I mean, it's a crooked country. Do you want to invest there? Do you want right. to invest in Germany? When the Germany's currency is the same currency as Greece and Spain's. So they, they, they're, they're really kind of forced, if they want to invest in the, in the stock market, to come to the United States. Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, that's very interesting, and that's, I guess, the way it is. It's a world that is really becoming, uh, the opportunities are becoming increasingly less, although we, uh, we get an argument, of course, from Larry, uh, Saruma, who was with us last time. He's talking about Africa, but, uh, but in any event, uh, Jim, we only have another minute or so left. Um, you know, what do you think? Do you think we're going to get a QE3? Is that coming down the pike anytime soon? Well, you know, when I look at the stock market, I'm I'm an Elliott Wave person. Uh-huh. Okay, I had and and I, I used Tom DeMark and Elliott Wave. Uh, la, uh, the last the last day of March, I had a red thirteen top on the S and P, so that told me the S and P was ready to correct. 
but it's correcting on you know and the the run what we had from the October till end of March was the third leg of the Elliott wave. Mm-hmm. Now we're coming down on four. We're going to go up on five, which will take us oh probably into the fall, and then the market's going to start sliding, and then it'll go into a correction that will last a year. Hmm. It'll be going down for a solid year. So this September October type of thing. Yep, it'll st- you know wherever we peak out on this fifth wave, mm-hmm. then it will roll over and start a big ABC correction that will take a whole year to complete. How far do you think that takes us down on the Dow? Let's say do you do you see us uh, do you see us um, challenging the um, uh, the March 2009 lows on this leg down, or would that be on a sub? No, on this correction, we'll take the S and P down to 1300, a little below 1300. And then we'll go back up, and we'll make a new high after that. Okay. Probably get close to 1,500 on the S&P, and then it will roll over and then do a big ABC correction, which will probably go back 50 to 62% from there. So that'll take us back to 750, maybe 700 on the S&P. Yeah, that's um, that, that's very, very interesting. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I do follow Elliott Wave to an extent. I'm sure not uh, anywhere nearly as astutely as you do. I do read Robert Prechter's work. And uh, and by the way, your newsletter, I need to get that newsletter. Uh, it, it, can people subscribe to it? Yeah, they can subscribe to it. How do we do that? Uh, they can uh, they can call me. Well, right now, the best way to get a hold of me is on my cell phone. But, but you know, and, and by the time we get to May, I'll be get back to Montana, and I have an 800 number there. Or they can go to my website, but my website is down right now because I've got a guy revamping it and redoing it. Is there and someone so in your office? The best way uh, to call me is to? call me on my cell phone at area code 406 853 so once I get to Montana in May, then they can call me at 800-634-3376. And once I get my website back up, which it should be up within a week or ten days, that's jlfutures.com. Okay, very good. Well, there's so much more to talk to you about, and we will get a chance. Uh, I really want to remind my listeners uh, to consider attending the Wealth Protection Conference where Jim Lyles will be there, Ian McAvity, Arch Crawford, myself, Roger Wiegand, a number of other, uh, Sinclair No, a number of other really noteworthy speakers will be there. But I think if anybody you want to listen to, uh, for my money at least, it's uh, the guy we've just been talking to here, uh, Jim Lyles. Jim, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. I look forward to you seeing bet. you down there. Let me just tell our listeners that they can call in that number to attend the Wealth conference uh and uh, what did i do with that number again i know i had 800, it right in front. 800-494-4149 800-494-4149 and locally if you're in arizona you can call 480-820-5877 480-820-5877 thank you very much jim for being with us today look forward well, to you, seeing you in, uh, in a couple of weeks down there in sunny arizona we'll see you there okay bye thank you uh, folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back. We're supposed to have uh, John Lee. Um, my engineer is telling me he's not yet with me. Uh, if he doesn't check in, uh, I've got some other things to talk to you about. I'll pick up where I left off last week uh, on my own investment ideas um, and why gold is in a bull market of a lifetime. I'll tell you why I think that's the case uh, if John Lee does not show up with us. If he does, we'll uh, we'll listen to what he has to say about Prophecy Platinum. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American 
AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at W www.rypatchgold.com Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, Please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and we had hoped to have John Lee with us. Uh, he was going to call in from Mongolia. Somehow I sort of figured something might not work out. Uh, Mongolia, the time difference, uh, I mean, it's the middle of the night there. But in any event, John is not with us. So what I want to do is pick up where I left off last week uh, on my talk about why gold is in a bull market or why gold mining in particular is in a bull market of a lifetime. And it has a lot to do with this notion that we are in a credit deflationary period of time. That is, the credit markets have to deflate. The markets have become so large that they can no longer, that the credit, that is, the debt has become so large relative to income that there's no way it can be serviced. And the natural inclination, as Jim Lyles and I talked about the last segment, is for the, uh, for the debt markets to implode. That is, to have massive defaults uh, massive bankruptcies, and the debt gets wiped off the uh, off the books, and then you can start anew with a new Kondratiev cycle that Ian Gordon talks about, and then you can have a, a lot of uh, growth, legitimate growth. If the government keeps its cotton-picking hands off of the economy and allows people to be free, you can have constructive, productive growth in a way that is unimaginable uh, to those of us that have lived under an increasingly socialist environment over the last number of years. Well, let's get back to the basic reasons why I think that gold and gold mining in particular is in a bull market of a lifetime. One of the things you have to realize is that during these credit cycles, when the credit markets contract, the items that were really held in high esteem that people put most of their money into during the good times are sold and people scramble for liquidity. And John Exter's uh, inverted pyramid is really the most important thing to conceptualize here, that during the good times, when the expansion, when the credit markets are expanding, you have illiquid items, luxury items at the top of an inverted pyramid, small business, real estate, diamonds, gemstones, OTC stocks, Commodities, muni bonds to a lesser extent. You go down the car, down the pyramid, the inverted pyramid. At the very bottom, the most, uh, the most liquid item 
uh, is gold. And then above that is, uh, is Federal Reserve notes. That's the money you carry around in your pockets. And right above that is Treasury bills, which is one of the reasons that some people like Robert Prechter and others, uh, we had A. Gary Schilling on this show, that are very bullish on Treasury bills. These are, uh, and Treasury bonds. These are people that are deflationist and they think that, uh, and they see what happens during deflation, that the people sell the items that are illiquid and luxury items and they go, and, and risky items and they go down into the, uh, to the more sure things. They want to be able to make sure their very basic needs in life are taken care of, uh, and to heck with the, uh, with the luxury items. So, that is the dynamic that takes place. We saw it happen after Lehman Brothers. We read about it happening during the 1930s uh, when all the luxury items uh, and less liquid items were sold and you had a crash uh, in the equity markets for sure. You had a decline in real estate prices. You had a decline, decline in the nominal values of everything, which really was deflation across the board, not only in the credit markets but also in the real economy. And that meant that your dollar would actually buy more. Well, we did see that happen briefly after Lehman Brothers, and then the policymakers went to work, and they kept the markets from doing what the markets really wanted to do, to let all of the air out of the bubbles that Mr. Greenspan and Mr. Bernanke created over many, many years, and Federal Reserve Chairman before that, as they created money out of nothing, created debt, uh, and debt is the raw material from which our money is created in this market. Well, I want to go to some insights from Bob Hoy, uh, the author of Institutional Investors. And Bob has gone back and looked at the last 300 years, uh, and he has uh, he has noticed that the real price of gold, the price of gold relative to everything else, other other commodities primarily is what he measured against, has always gone up, has increased dramatically for a 15 to 20 year period of time. It happened in the 1930s. That was the previous uh, main bubble collapse uh, was in 1929. Uh, and Bob Hoy believes that we are now in the sixth major credit deflation of the last 300 years. There was a previous one was, as I said, 1929. It was uh, 1873 uh, and 1825 in the United Kingdom. Keep in mind that the first four of these six were UK-centric. That is, the British pound sterling was the world's reserve currency, and hence uh, that uh, when the bubble was left out, uh, when the credit bubble collapsed during those times, the um, uh, it was the pound sterling was was the uh, was the reserve currency, and the sterling then would get stronger. Uh, it would get stronger because everybody had to sell those items at the top of that inverted pyramid and go down and buy sterling, just as they had to in the 1930s. They had to buy dollars, and now they have to buy dollars again. So this is why after Lehman Brothers, we see the dollar get a bounce back. Uh, from, uh, as Jim Lyles was talking about, close to 71, uh, and then bounced back. Uh, and the dollar has, uh, uh, you know, has bounced back uh, again, uh, in spite of the fact that trillions of dollars have been created out of nothing by Ben Bernanke. So with the real price of gold rising very dramatically relative to everything else, relative to other commodities, and in some cases relative to labor as well, certainly in the 1930s that was the case, then the gold mining share profits start to rise very dramatically. And lo and behold, we have seen that happen uh, in uh, this cycle. In the 1930s, uh, I just should mention that there was a huge boom in the gold mining industry. And why was that true? What was true? Because there were huge profits to be made in the gold mining industry. That's when the gold fields of eastern Canada and out in the western part of the United States were being developed. Uh, the gold mines now are being put back into production. Some of them were developed during the 1930s. Lots of money went from New York up into the Can Canadian mining fields and, and throughout the U.S., but especially in the West. Uh, there was a gold boom in the 1930s, and that was during a deflationary period of time, not an inflationary period of time. I am honestly not all that bullish about gold, especially gold mining, if we have the kind of hyperinflation that John Williams is looking for, the nominal price of gold may go up dramatically. But what about the real price of gold? Will gold go up more than other commodities? Not necessarily so in a hyperinflationary environment. But I do believe and lean towards, for reasons that I've talked about in the past, 
uh, towards a deflationary environment. In fact, I mentioned this uh, last week in my talk, some of the dynamics as to why I believe that we are in a deflationary uh, period of time, a credit deflation. Now, there will be other commodities and items that go up for a while, and that has been the case as Mr. Bernanke pumped huge amounts of money into the system. But ultimately, uh, I believe that we could actually see an outright deflation. Of course, A. Gary Schilling on this show, a guest on this show, believes that's true. And Ian Gordon believes that's true, Michael Shedlack, and, of course, the bear of all bears, uh, the uh, uh, Robert Prechter on this show, uh, believes that we're going to see a Dow Jones that's, uh, that's south of 600, uh, which would be just almost unbelievable, of course, but uh, time will tell. Uh, the point that I would like to make, though, and even Prechter agreed with this, even though he's bearish on gold, is that gold would rise relative to everything else, and it certainly has done so especially since Lehman Brothers, which I believe was the first leg down in this major deflationary environment that we're in, this major credit deflation that has started. And interestingly enough, I, uh, looking at the price of gold relative to the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, we see a huge decline or a huge rise in the price of gold relative to the other commodities, that energy, base metals, uh, food items, cotton, wool, that sort of thing, in the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. To give you a number, in uh, July of 2008, before Lehman Brothers' uh, failure, an ounce of gold would have purchased only about 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. By the time uh, March of 2009 rolled around, an ounce of gold would have purchased 44% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. So you had a huge increase in the purchasing power of, the, uh, of gold in terms of all the other commodities. And this is totally consistent with what happened before, according to Bob Hoy, and what we read about and know happened in the 1930s. Hoy, by the way, took his own, has his own proprietary measure of commodities that he uses. I use the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Hoy has a different basket of commodities that he uses, but the results uh, are more or less the same. So you can see in charts, uh, really, the tremendous difference since Lehman Brothers uh, a chart that I show next, it shows the uh, gold price rising uh, for a long time. It's gone sideways over the last year or so, but basically it's risen very dramatically uh, during this whole time post-Lehman Brothers period of time. The Rogers Raw Materials Fund came down very, very sharply uh, after Lehman Brothers. Gold came down a little bit, but then rose steadily. Uh, Rogers r rose to a certain extent, but basically we're looking now at a ratio uh, that had actually climbed to about 47.5% at the height of the recent Greek problem uh, in the European crisis. It came down now to about 42 or 43%. That compares, again, to 17% before the Lehman Brothers uh, crisis of 2008, the Lehman Brothers failure. Well, how has this translated into the uh, profitability of gold mining companies? I track about seven different gold mining companies that were in production producing profits uh, going back uh, before the Lehman Brothers crisis. Agneagle Eagle, Anglo Gold, Barrick, Goldfields, Gold Corp, Kinross, uh, Gold Corp, Newmont, and Yamana Gold are the ones that I had, uh, that I had, uh, that, that I track. Uh, in 2008, collectively, those companies earned $6.30. At the end of last year, 2010, um, well, actually, at the end of 2011, the numbers are almost complete now, that collective earning was $20.69. So we went from $6.30 in 2008, those companies, the collective earnings of those companies per share earnings, from $6.30 in 2008 to $20.69 at 2011. It's almost a completely a complete number now because the financials are are now coming in. So we're looking at a dramatic increase, of more than a threefold increase in the profits since the Lehman Brothers declined, since the real price of gold rose very dramatically. And we can see that this is really uh, quite dramatic, and the estimates going forward by the analysts next year are $24.03. Now, that is a number that's down from $29 recently, and I dare, dare say that's because the oil prices and energy prices and commodities have had a rebound uh, in the last number of months. I do believe that Jim Lyles is right, who talked last segment uh, about the decline uh, and the bearishness in, in the commodities. I believe Jim will be proven right. Indeed, we're seeing uh, copper uh, down below $4 very considerably now. Uh, and it was up quite a bit higher than that. Uh, 
Well, when will this major decline, this credit market um, implosion end? That is a question I think that uh, you need to look at very carefully. I don't think we're anywhere near the end of it right now in time. Another 10 years or so, I think, is we could see a bull market uh, as the credit markets continue to contract. But some of the things that I'm looking for is a Dow-to-gold ratio of 1 to 1, which is where bear markets have ended in the recent past. Over the last 100 years, there have been a few times when we've approached seen a, a Dow-to-gold ratio approach 1 to 1. I think when the U.S. debt-to-GDP levels are more normal, that is 125 to 175% of GDP instead of the 360, 370% that we're seeing now. Another point that I would be looking for is when blue chip stocks sell at less than 10 times earnings and when, uh, uh, that is, uh, when they pay good dividends from 5% to 10%. And when the real price of gold tops out, and maybe in 15 to 20 years from 2007 when the real price of gold started rising very dramatically. But historic debt levels definitely have to come down. This is the main thing that I think that we have to keep our eyes on. Now, there are some things I'm very optimistic about. Jim Lyles talked about the shale oil and gas technologies, the glutton of oil and gas. Energy prices could come down dramatically. This would fit a deflationary environment uh, that I think is very much uh, possible. Um, in the equity markets, there is some reason to be bullish, perhaps, about the NASDAQ, although I, I honestly believe, uh, you know, we've seen the NASDAQ rise above some, some resistance levels, but I honestly believe that the undertow uh, and the pressure of the deflationary depression, uh, pressure from the debt markets is likely to overcome the equity markets. So certainly, you know, we're seeing today a very dramatic decline and, and uh, some weakness in the equity prices. Jim Lyle's suggesting we'll get a bounce back, and then we're going to, um, uh, and then we're going to see, uh, you know, a bounce back higher, and then in the fall, a major decline in the equity markets. So that seems very realistic to me. I think uh, we do need to uh, keep in mind uh, that. Um, you know, markets don't go in one direction, that's for sure, and it's always very difficult to know which way they're going to go next. I do uh, want to just mention again uh, Chen Lin's uh, excellent track record growing uh, his uh, his wife's IRA from $5,400 in 2002 to uh, uh, $1,781,000 at the end of uh, this last month. Uh, Chen's top picks, Mart Resources, uh, uh, Pan Orient Energy, Oceana Gold, Calmain Foods, uh, and Gold and Minerals. These are some of his top picks. I would mention that Mart Resources, Oceana Gold, uh, Gold and Minerals are three of my top picks as well. Uh, I also like uh, Sandstorm Gold. I think one of the best ways for you to play the um, the equity markets, the gold price, and the gold companies because this is a company that has uh, a streaming operation has very little risk compared to most of the others. Will be able to survive uh, no matter where its share price goes, as long as the um, the underlying economics remain very strong for gold mining companies. Uh, Sandstorm is one of my favorites. I like Dynacor Gold Mines very much uh, because it is also a small gold producer that doesn't need to go out to the equity markets and raise more cash. I like Sand Gold very much. SGR is a symbol. Sand Gold uh, is in Manitoba. Uh, it should produce um, uh, around 100,000 ounces this year. But the main thing is that this is a company that I think you're going to see, as uh, as George Peary said on this show some time ago, a, an exponential increase in the resource of this company, high-grade resource in Manitoba, and I think you're going to see long-term growth beyond belief for sand gold. SGR is a symbol in Canada. So those are some of the things that, uh, that I'm looking at, uh, the gold mining companies. I do believe we are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold mining companies. Uh, we will be talking to uh, gold mining companies on this show. We'll be talking to people uh, that are experts in the field of, uh, of mining, uh, and uh, both in the markets as well as, in the, uh, as, as producers and companies that are actually making it happen to the CEOs of these companies. Um, I just uh, have a couple of minutes before closing. I'd like to read an email from a, uh, a listener. Um, his name is uh, Lee Walters. He said, first off, he says, I really enjoy your show. Uh, he says, I'm a, a shareholder of Sandstorm Gold 
and have been since I since before I started listening to your show. Uh, I am wondering what your thoughts on the recent share consolidation news are with respect to Sandstorm. Well, let me say that I think it makes a lot of sense. Sandstorm is going to be rolling back their shares, I think, on a five-to-one basis they're uh, proposing. To me, uh, I hate to see rollbacks, but in this case, I think it's because Sandstorm is going to have exponential growth in earnings, uh, It's going to, and it doesn't need to raise any more capital. Uh, and it will have a higher share price, which will allow it to be uh, to be listed on a, probably on the New York market, and that should bring in new buyers into the stock. I think that's a bullish move and a good move for this company, unlike in most cases where share rollbacks are really uh, put into effect to allow uh, investment bankers to come in and get some cheap shares uh, and start the clock running again. Uh, the uh, Mr. Walters also says, secondly, he says, I know that you are of the deflation side of the spectrum. I've heard it repeatedly said that money is not making it into the real economy through banks. If so, what is the case for a deflationary scenario when an inflationary bubble has not occurred? Well, I would just say that the the case for a deflation is that um, – you know, as, as uh, a, a Gary Schilling said on the show, uh, central banks, the Fed doesn't print money. It pumps money. It puts money into the banking system. If the banking system can't lend it out, as was the case in the 1930s and as has been the case to a great extent now, although uh, last week um, um, Paul Van Eden suggested that we were starting to see some lending take place, uh, by and large I think that has not been has not been the case, and so it's very difficult to get a, a, um, a system like ours to grow and to get the economy to grow and to uh, create excess demand when you have to do it through the banking system. Now, if, you, if we were Zimbabwe and we literally handed out money to, to, to millions of people, then I think the case would be a lot different and we could see hyperinflation uh, take place very, very quickly. Uh, Jim Lyles, I think, makes the point, and John Williams makes the point on this show uh, actually, that's John Williams' case for hyperinflation is a dollar that really goes that, – that loses its value, that becomes absolutely worthless. I don't see that happening right away. I, it may happen eventually. I suppose that inevitably it happens eventually. But as long as the empire can keep alive uh, and keep its war machinery going and force people to buy its currency, um, I'm not sure that that's going to happen anytime real soon. Um, well, that's that's uh, about it with respect to uh, Lee Waters' question, he, Walter's question. He also wanted to know about the flight from the dollar. Well, eventually, as I say, there could be uh, a flight out of the dollar. I think we're starting to see some of that happen now. Uh, but it's going to be a long, drawn-out process in my view. I could be wrong about that. Well, that's all the time we have this week. I want to thank you again for listening. Next week, our special guest will be David Martin, and uh, and I'm also going to be talking to Arch Crawford. Um, in closing, I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my executive producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.